Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be with you again today. In this podcast, I want to briefly discuss a medical conspiracy kind of interesting thing that I've had occasion to research recently and that I think a lot of people might benefit from. And then I want to go into a Bible prophecy related, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a theory, but just something that I've been thinking about regarding the rapture lately. And I will simulcast that portion of this podcast on the Bible Prophecy Daily podcast, which I mentioned in the previous podcast that I did, which is um, the Bible Prophecy Daily podcast, something you should subscribe to on whatever podcatcher you like. It has multiple hosts, all with a very similar view in Bible prophecy, or at least on some issues, mostly the rapture-related issues. But uh, anyway... So the first thing I wanted to talk about is kind of a, a two things, really. One is dysbiosis, which leads to brain inflammation, which is the root cause of a lot of severe anxiety and related disorders. It could be OCD. It could even be schizophrenia. I mean, the medical research on this stuff is crazy, but I'll get into that. And I think to a certain degree, because it's so related, I want to talk about insulin resistance. And in a lot of ways, although dysbiosis, and I should define my terms here, dysbiosis uh, referring to people's gut bacteria, you know how our intestines have these bacteria in a perfect world, those bacteria should be mostly good and bad bacteria. Uh, I think probiotics has gotten a lot of um, attention lately, so most people kind of know that it's supposed to be good bacteria, and if you like, I don't know, took a lot of uh, antibiotics at some point, you basically killed all the good bacteria and the bad bacteria that was resistant to that stayed and probably over, you know, took the whole situation. And when bad bacteria has a much greater uh, impact on your gut, dysbiosis is what it means. Just a whole bunch of crazy, wild, crazy bacteria in your intestines. And that's dysbiosis, a really bad imbalance, usually precipitated by a time of antibiotics without replenishing it uh, through probiotics and other things, which doctors now or good doctors will tell you to do these days, but never did back in the day. So a lot of people had uh, occasion to have dysbiosis and that can start a chain of, of really bad things. Number one, it can eventually lead to all, you know, uh, um, a, a breaking down of the wall of the lining of the intestines. Um, and that means that a lot of things can happen. Number one, you can, all the things that you eat, you know, the food particles themselves, they don't stay in your intestines or some of them leak out because now you have uh, increased intestinal permeability, aka leaky gut, and that those food particles get into your bloodstream and basically in that sort of inner space between your organs and everything else. And your white blood cells attack food particles and they just get tired of that over and over and over again. So it leads to autoimmune disease and other things like that. Um, uh, all kinds of food allergies and stuff like that. It's a, a person that has a leaky gut would also be extremely sensitive to the side effects of the drugs that they take. And But that's just, that's something I've talked about before. That is to say leaky gut and, and how... Uh, a chain reaction of bad bacteria leads to leaky gut, leads to all kinds of inflammation, basically. And But here's another aspect of it that is just totally taking the uh, mental health world by storm. 
And if you look up PubMed, and PubMed is this place where people publish, uh, you know, medical studies and these kinds of things, um, on these related issues, and you're interested in this kind of thing, you'll be blown away. And that is um, the discovery that dysbiosis has this just amazing connection to all kinds of what we used to think were incurable psychiatric disorders. I've mentioned already anxiety, OCD, and schizophrenia. I think that covers a pretty broad range. But if you have some kind of severe psychiatric or um, other mood disorder, what I would do is go to PubMed, type in the word gut, G-U-T, and your disorder or, or syndrome or whatever, and just see. I mean, I'm, I'm looking up gut and anxiety right now. And you can just see this huge spike in the last few years with this in the literature. And it is not just like, oh, people are doing more research about it. The reason there's a spike is because it's building on each other. People are seeing these, you know, people get cured from schizophrenia where that wasn't a thing that happened before. People are getting their lives back from crippling anxiety. And it is causing other people to build on that research and say, well, okay, what, what exactly happened here? Let's test some other things. Let's sort of narrow it down. What is it that's having the, this effect? Now, most of the time, their um, answers here have to do with uh, ketogenic diet and or intermittent fasting, which amounts to the same thing, basically. But um, also there is an element of, you know, curing the, you know, getting the balance back right in your uh, gut, which usually a ketogenic diet will really help with because most of the bad stuff in your gut eats uh, sugar, basically. But we'll get to that part of the discussion in a minute. First, I want to talk about what's the pathology here? How is bad bacteria in your intestines affecting your brain in this way? First, I should start off by saying that some of this is speculative, and I certainly don't have the big picture here and am going to get some of the details wrong. But part of the reason that it's a little speculative is because the field is a little speculative, despite the fact that it's very well documented. So if you go to PubMed and you type in gut-brain axis, this is a pretty well-known term, gut-brain axis, you will find over 6,000 papers about this phenomenon, which is known to exist without a doubt. There is a connection between the types of bacteria that are in your gut and all kinds of things that happen to your brain as a result of that bacteria. They do transplants and things. I mean, it's just very well established. How or why it works is not as well established, or at least hasn't been until recently, where I think a lot of the developments that I'm talking about with schizophrenia and anxiety and stuff are starting to be a little more understood. And the broad strokes, as I understand it, is that bad bacteria, especially when you have a really bad overgrowth of the really bad stuff, it those bacteria produce toxins as a byproduct. There's like fermenting processes with the sugar and all kinds of stuff that happens. Their waste itself uh, is producing these really dangerous toxins, which as a person with dysbiosis, you have a leaky gut, certainly. It, that stuff is getting into your bloodstream. And that stuff passes through the blood-brain barrier with literally no problems. So it's getting into your system through your gut, these toxins, which are getting into your brain and causing inflammation in the areas of the brain that relate to 
anxiety and OCD and, and schizophrenia and all kinds of mood disorders. And so it really depends on the types of toxins and the area in the brain that's inflamed. But some of these people out there have severely inflamed brains and parts of their brains that have to do with whatever disorder they're dealing with. So I want to pivot to insulin resistance because people that have severe crippling anxiety, you can almost, to a man, ask them, hey, do you have a bit of a sweet tooth? And he's like, oh, yeah, I got a bit of a sweet tooth. And what they're saying there is that they have intense cravings for sugar. And that is a biochemical reaction to some of the problems that are causing this inflammation. And so, and what the big problem here is, even now, people that have this are listening to this and they're getting a little bit twitchy. Because what I've found is that when you challenge somebody's sugar addiction, brother, it gets spiritual real quick. And I think that a lot of people out there will literally choose Cokes over life. And I'm not joking. It is as bad or worse than dying from any kind of crack or, or, you know, heroin addiction. I mean, there's almost no difference. I'll get into that in a minute. But I think that I first should talk a little about insulin resistance to show how the, at least from a, you know, uh, a medical perspective, it all sort of ties into one another. So insulin resistance, um, this is this new thing, also fairly new discovery. There's a lot of new stuff that's been coming up with this that is stuff I sure would have liked to know. Insulin resistance. So if you are a person who, you know, eats a lot of carbs and sugar, so carbs, bread and crackers and all that stuff, it just turns into glucose. When your body gets done breaking it all down, it's going to break it down to glucose. If it's a saltine cracker, it's turning into glucose. And in the same way that if you drink Cokes, it will turn into glucose. I mean, it, it ends up in the same molecule, glucose. So if you're addicted to carbs, it doesn't really matter if you're addicted to crackers or you're addicted to, you know, straight sugar juice. Although one of them I think of is like the gateway drug. You're sort of just addicted to marijuana if you're addicted to crackers and bread. But if you're drinking like Cokes every day, you're, you're addicted to the strongest version of an insulin hit that is known to man. That is something that doesn't even need to be broke down. It's already in its glucose form, essentially, and you're getting this massive hit of it at one time. It's the highest form. It's like doing... Cokes are like the meth of the of the sugar drug world. And the, if you're at the point where you're craving a hit from a sugar drink, you are at the highest level of this addiction. And therefore, you're going to resist everything that I'm going to talk about today on a spiritual level is my belief. But insulin resistance, what is it? So... Insulin resistance is a term to say that the normal function of insulin in your body has ceased to function. It has ceased to function because mostly, I mean, for shorthand, because the standard American diet, you know, you probably had too much sugar for too long and eventually it just broke down. But what does insulin do? So when you eat something sweet or a cracker or a Coke or something like that, your, your brain immediately detects through your tongue, we now know, this is a really important thing. And it's important because I used to think that it was all about the glycemic index. That is to say, when you ate something sweet, it was all about how much does it spike your blood sugar. That is no longer the case. Uh, they've done studies to find out that it actually isn't about how much your blood sugar gets spiked in, in, that determines how much insulin your brain decides to release. It's actually what your tongue senses. So 
your tongue can sense stevia or truvia or whatever you think is sweet and is okay, aspartame, diet cokes, all this stuff, it doesn't matter. You're getting just as fat and you're releasing just as much insulin. If you are a sugar, uh, a gum chewer, you are literally getting a constant hit of insulin all the time. You are going to get insulin resistance. It is, so basically, if your tongue senses something sweet, because they've done tests of, of mice, they've literally cut their tongue out and they don't get the spike of uh, uh, insulin because they can't taste anything sweet, despite the fact that it is sweet. And they've done this reverse of it where they've done it with stevia and all the things that you can think of. It's just about the taste. So when your tongue tastes it, your brain releases insulin. And the reason your brain releases insulin is that it, it's got to go deal with the sugar. Now you put sugar all in your body, right? So it's insulin has this thing where it's going to go find all the sugar and it's going to like, you know, do process the sugar. It's going to give some sugar to cells for energy. It's going to store some other sugar. It's basically like, oh man, we got to go deal with all the sugar. Why does it have to de deal with it? Well, for lots of reasons. Number one, if it didn't deal with it, it would toxify your whole body. Uh, but you know, it also is used for energy and, and fat stores and these kinds of things. Although I should say that in a normal human world, we shouldn't be using sugars for energy, but basically everybody in America does because everything that we eat has some version of it. So we never deplete our glycogen. So we never need to burn fat for energy like normal people in a normal world would do. Um, so we're all burning sugar. Our bodies have mostly adapted to burning sugar for energy anyway. So Part of it, what insulin's job in a normal situation is to go deal with all the sugar that you threw in your body. So it's got to go put some of it away for storage. It's going to put some of it in different cells for energy and stuff like that. But once it breaks, once the system just like, there's just too much sugar and there's too much of it all the time. And, or, and I suspect there are lots of different reasons why insulin resistance can initiate. I don't know. Maybe genetics, genetics could play a role. Because, I mean, there are some people that I would assume... I, I don't know, but I think that most of the time it's just like you're a person that has always drank Cokes and you've always done it and now you've reached a certain age, so your insulin just quit. But when it quits, it no longer is effective at doing its job, insulin. It can no longer hide the sugar and the fat. It can no longer get the sugar into cells. It's resistant. Now your cells are resistant to insulin, so it can't get the sugar away for energy. So some of the immediate effects of that is that you, you don't have energy because now your body hasn't switched over to burning fats and not getting into ketosis by any means. You're still getting a little bit of sugar, but not enough for energy. So not only are you not getting the sugar for energy, but it's continually releasing more insulin uh, because it thinks, hey, we, it still recognizes that there's sugar in your body. So now you're extremely ravenous for sweet stuff. Like you can't even handle it. You You want sweet stuff really, really bad. And that's when it gets into like, no, no, I need to chug some Coke instead of like, I think I'll just have a little piece of bread, you know? So that's when the, the, the addiction really starts to get bad. And it's just like drugs in the sense that now you get diminishing returns, you know? Uh, you need more for less. But the real danger where stuff starts to break down is now you've got severe toxin overload in your body. Glucose that is swimming around in your bloodstream that can't go anywhere, can't get into your cells, can't get into, uh, be used for energy. So it's just glucose flowing around your blood. Uh, and now you've got insulin that isn't doing its job and your body is continually releasing more and more of it that can't do its job. So now you're like just stuffed to the brim with insulin and glucose that nothing, nobody can do anything with. 
So what happens is your kidneys start to break down. Your kid think of your kidneys as a Berkey water filter. It's lots of like networks of, uh, and I could be a little bit <laughs> wrong about this, but uh, like a network of, of little um, um, nets or whatever, like a filter does, right? And eventually when you have all this junk in your blood, especially glucose, which tends to be sticky, if I understand it in a sense, in a molecular sense, clogs up your kidneys and your kidneys cease to function. And what happens then is this is downward spiral because if your kidneys, and I, I say cease to function, let's just say they're suboptimally functioning, even in like a person that doesn't even have a lot of these symptoms yet, you, you have suboptimally functioning kidneys. And a kidney's main job is to filter out the bad stuff. It's a Berkey water filter. And so you get all the toxins that should be, um, you know, filtered in your body are not being filtered correctly. So you get the inflammation and toxic stuff that happens as a result. One good example is gout in a, in a severe instance. So gout is another example of doctors just getting it wrong for a long time. But if recently, or at least good ones are starting to figure it out, which is, a buildup of uric acid. So uric acid is a thing that causes, uh, when it builds up in your body, it, it, it settles in joints and causes arthritis. Like it settles at low points and your big toe, for example, get severe arthritis uh, caused by this uh, compound called, or whatever it is, I guess it's a molecule or protein called uric acid. So uric acid is, doctors for a long time have just blamed this on meat. It's like, oh, you're eating too many of the wrong meats because some meats have uric acid in it. But, but the problem is, is that, you know, through meats or dietary meat, I mean, at most we're getting one third of our uric acid through dietary meats. The vast majority of uric acid that we get, we produce ourselves. It's sort of a, uh, your body produces it, I think, for like an antioxidant reason or something like that. But in a normal functioning body with a normal functioning set of kidneys, the uric acid is filtered through the filter. So they've done studies to find that the people with gout um, are like, I think the number that I heard was 90% of people with gout are not uh, uh, eliminating the uric acid that their body makes or any of the uric acid that they take in, obviously, as well. So in other words... Doc, if you go to a doctor and you say gout, they're going to be like, well, let's just stay off meat and here's some drugs that Pfizer told me to give you. And you're basically going to kill you with these drugs. I don't know. Maybe the drugs are good. I don't know. But the point is, is that they give you drugs and they tell you not to eat meat when what they should say is that this is all caused by insulin resistance. So insulin resistance is the key uh, component to all kinds of diseases, cardiovascular stuff, high blood pressure, lots of brain problems are also insulin resistance. It's this key Rosetta Stone for most of what's ailing us. What are some symptoms of insulin resistance? Um, if you have a, a large waistline, particularly abdominal fat, is a pretty good indicator that you have insulin resistance. It's one of the primary indicators, abdominal fat. High blood pressure is pretty well obvious. Um, things like high cholesterol. I know that they probably put you on statins, but if you are on statins right now, you need to immediately research that and figure out that all good doctors have stopped prescribing statins. Statins are the most profitable drug that Pfizer sells, way more profitable than the COVID vaccine. Statins are the bread and butter of every pharmaceutical company out there. And doctors are making a killing from uh, getting you uh, on statins. And it is totally the wrong diagnosis, in my opinion. Please do your research. I'm not a doctor. Don't ever listen to anything that I say. Skin tags, if you have these 
what's called skin tags, these little sort of things that start to develop, obvious sign of insulin resistance. It's pre-diabetes, basically. You're going to get diabetes and you are going to have kidney failure and it's going to be because of sugar. And so the, what I've found about this is that people will defend their sugar intake like they'll, I mean, I'm not being facetious here. I'm saying this because I know people that made this choice openly. I know multiple people that have made this choice that they'd rather eat sugar than live, that they may not say it like that, but they'd rather die a painful death of kidney failure and all the things like that than to give up their sweet tooth. This little pretty word that we use, sweet tooth, when it's actually a metabolic reaction to the inability to get energy through sugar because it's been damaged. And I do think it's spiritual too, at least in a sense. And a lot of the things that come with insulin resistance, we started off this discussion talking about the anxiety, severe crippling psychiatric problems, and I'm sure a whole host of other things are capitalized on by Satan and demons. They're using it to, uh, and, and, and here's something that if you ever try to get out of this, it's like somebody trying to get out of a drug addiction. It's exactly the same. It Not only is are you going to have the normal dopamine problems that somebody that tries to get off um, a drug has, like if you tried to get off nicotine or alcohol or whatever, you're going to, you're, you are going to be used to those triggers and your body is going to be used to that dopamine. Listen to me very carefully. Nobody quits anything unless, not just that they want to, everybody wants to quit something like that. You have to have like a reason that is strong enough to do it and that you reason it, it can't be like, oh, I think I want to, you know, some, some nebulous, oh, I think I'd like to live for my kids or whatever. No, you gotta, you gotta know that it's either this or death. You've, that's the kind of thing you have to have in your mind in order to be able to quit something that has this kind of dopamine impact. So short term, you know, you're going to have a week or two weeks of like the worst time of your life as you try to figure out uh, how to deal with this. And how to deal with it is basically low carb and intermittent fasting, intermittent fasting. There are some great books out there on intermittent fasting, some great books on diabetes. Uh, one of the things, Jason Fung, who wrote The Obesity Code and The Diabetes Code, great books, great audiobooks as well, if you're interested in the sciency part of it. Obesity Code, di uh, Diabetes Code, it's basically the same information just for two different audiences. Um, also, if you want the more sort of uh, um, easy version of it, you might check out something like uh, Eat Fast, Repeat, I think is one of them. Uh, but intermittent fasting on YouTube is this world of intermittent fasting. There's doctors out there. Dr. Berg is a great one on YouTube. You know, just start watching all doc <coughs> Dr. Berg's stuff or uh, some of these other kind of doctors like um, anybody that uh, the functional medicine, I always recommend if you are looking for a doctor, they're not going to be on your insurance or whatever, but it's this growing network of doctors that actually care and will do tests to figure out what's actually wrong with you. Uh, uh, and they're in your city. If you just type in functional medicine on, in Google, you know, local, you'll find it. All that to say that it's the sugar man. You got to deal with the sugar and you've got to do intermittent fasting as well. Uh, because as I said earlier, it sort of amounts to the same thing. You've got to wean your body off using sugar for energy. One of the fastest ways to do that is through cutting off, uh, is through intermittent fasting. And intermittent fasting has so many other benefits too, but the primary one is autophagy. 
So it's kind of like skin tags, you know, skin tags is a weird thing that is associated with this, but skin tags basically means cell overgrowth. You know, it, it, this stuff is happening all throughout your body because you no longer have the ability to have uh, autophagy. And autophagy is your body sending out trash men, these macrophages that go out and clean all the, the bad cells that are malformed proteins and all this other stuff. That's what its job. But if you are never giving your body enough time to get into autophagy, basically you're eating past, let's say, 8 o'clock and you're eating breakfast. You, your body has never gone into autophagy in years and years and years. You could get there if you were, you could either just go completely low carb, like all the way low carb and maybe get there and, and be able to have that kind of three meals a day concept. But the other option is to eat, you know, more normally, but just don't eat as much. And you have to give yourself these windows in order for your body to switch over to autophagy. So it can start dealing with these, you know, cancer cells and other stuff that you have in your body and your body needs time to go kill that stuff. Okay, I'll, I'll stop with this subject, but I will close by saying that if you decide to do this, to go low carb or do intermittent fasting or something like that, you need to expect a serious counterattack, not just from your body, because I, I, it's almost like the bad bacteria fights back, and it's almost like, and I know this seems to really be true if there's a yeast overgrowth, it really does seem to have like a fight back kind of mentality like it it's gets it gets hungry it eats sugar all that bad stuff that has the gut brain axis i mean has connection to your brain it eats sugar so it is going to be mad when you try to stop sugar and that's over and above the dopamine withdrawal that you're going to be dealing with which if you're a coke drinker that chugs cokes as i said you're basically at a meth level of you know, dopamine addiction, well, meth is insane dopamine release, so it's not that, but it's a lot higher than somebody that's addicted to bread. Um, and so you're going to be fighting major dopamine withdrawals. You're going to be very irritable, and that's just to say the least. I think that die-off is a real thing that happens. You get flu-like symptoms if you actually do start to kill the bad bacteria. And so, yeah, I would get probiotics. I would replace as much good bacteria. I would go, I would just go down a YouTube rabbit hole with terms like insulin resistance, uh, gut brain axis, uh, gut anxiety, gut, you know, whatever your, your problem is, um, um, microbiota dysbiosis. And here's the big one, insulin resistance, put a big circle around that. In many ways, insulin resistance is the enemy and it is caused, well, sugar is the enemy and our addiction to it. Sugar is not a natural thing to have around us and this kind of potency and, and, uh, uh, I, you know, it's just bad. <laughs> All right. That's it for this subject. Okay. Moving on to part two of this podcast, the Bible prophecy portion. I wanted to talk today about this. I guess you would call it a theory, but it's really just something that I've been thinking about, which is that pre-tribulationalism or the belief in the timing of the rapture, according to a pre-tribber necessarily leads to wrong conclusions about the end times scenario in general and how it all plays out. And therefore, a pre-tribber is necessarily left with um, no fear of deception in any real way. In fact, they're left with a almost ridiculous version of what the deception of the end times would look like. So let me walk this uh, uh, let me walk through this here. It's kind of difficult, so 
Uh, it's kind of a step-by-step -step process. So first, the end times plays out over a period of seven years, sometimes called the 70th week of Daniel. Um, we know this because of Daniel 9, etc. So this seven-year period, all the different views on the rapture, they also think that it plays out over a seven-year period. But the question that uh, the difference that they all have is, when does the day of the Lord start, which is synonymous with the wrath of God, the day of the Lord, when does the day of the Lord, the wrath of God, start in relationship to that seven-year period? Three of the four versions, or let's call uh, the pre-wrath and the mid-trib and the post-trib, and there's different versions of post-trib, but they all fall into the same category. Everybody else believes that the day of the Lord starts after the middle of that seven-year period. So sometime after the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist sits in the temple and declares himself to be God, starts a persecution that's unlike any other persecution. The Bible calls this period after the midpoint, the Great Tribulation. So the day of the Lord, according to the vast majority of the rapture positions, happens after the midpoint. Pre-tribbers are unique in that, in two ways. First, they're the only one that thinks that the entire seven-year period is the day of the Lord. And they're also unique in that they don't have a single proof text for that position. I, I, I'm taking a little bit of a jab here because it's something that I think is astounding. That uh, not only do they not have a place in the Bible to prove that the whole seven years is the wrath of God, they most pre-tribbers don't even know that this is something that they need to argue, even though it's like the only thing that they need to prove. And if you really pressed the average pre-tribber, they would probably talk about the Jewish wedding concept. I remember being a pre-tribber and learning about the Jewish wedding thing in an unbiblical version of a Jewish wedding, a story that you have to get told in order to believe pre-tribulationalism. And I didn't know at the time that I was being sort of indoctrinated by this unbiblical story that's literally crucial to me believing that the entire seven years is the wrath of God, despite no evidence and plenty of evidence to the contrary, but I digress. The important part is that they, like all the people that are premillennial, that believe that there will be a rapture and a day of the Lord and a seven-year period, everybody agrees that the rapture happens before the day of the Lord, except for some post-tribbers, but we'll leave them out for now. So everybody believes that the rapture happens before the day of the Lord, and since the pre-tribbers believe that the entire seven years is the day of the Lord, pre-tribbers believe that the rapture happens before the seven-year period ever begins. So we know what kicks off the seven-year period, according to Scripture. It is the covenant made with many that the Antichrist makes. Some people call it a peace tre treaty. I don't like that term. I don't think it has anything to do with the peace treaty, but it is a covenant made with many, um, and that's what starts off the, the seven-year period. Before that period... We don't really know, certainly from Scripture, of what the Antichrist is doing. There's no way to prove that the Antichrist is doing anything before that covenant at the beginning of the seven-year period. It may be that he just comes on the scene at that moment. We, we're not really sure. I tend to think that he will be known to a certain degree before that. But that's certainly a coming to uh, power prominence. It is, however, not the revealing of the Antichrist. Uh, some pre-tribbers like to say that but it is clear that the revealing of the Antichrist is a reference to the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. It's not uh, relevant now, but, but it, it's explicit in 2 Thessalonians 2, as far as my reading of it. But 
The vast majority of pre-tribbers, when given these two bits of criteria, that is to say that the entire seven-year period is the day of the Lord and the rapture happens before the day of the Lord, they do what I think is the right thing, which is put the rapture really right before, like days before at max, the, the day of the Lord starts. I believe that, and most, most pre-rathers would teach that, the rapture and the day of the Lord are back-to-back -back events. They literally happen on the same day. The rapture happens, the God's people are taken out of the way, and the wrath of God happens on the same day, in the same way that Jesus makes the point that Noah entered the ark on the same day, uh, Lot gets out of uh, Gomorrah on that same day, the wrath of God. I think that's the point of that timing teaching there in the Olivet Discourse. There are some other um, ways to argue that point, but I think it's a good thing. And most pre-tribulationalists that don't know the problems with the precursor theory will argue that as well, although there are a, a growing number of pre-tribbers that will argue that the rapture happens some unknown time before, like many, many years before the seven-year period. And they do that um, because of some problems that develop when you start to show that there are things that are supposed to happen before the day of the Lord. I don't want to get into all that right now, but they do that despite their best interest, and they only do it to sort of deal with some major, major problems in their position. But the vast majority, uh, because of the Olivet Discourse teaching and some other things, recognize that the rapture and the day of the Lord are at least very closely tied chronologically, if not on the same day. I say that to, to say that the typical, like, last day's interpretation of this event in the pre-tribber mindset is that the event of the rapture, which occurs, you know, out of nowhere, we're all looking at a sunny day, nobody's thinking about the Antichrist, then one day the rapture happens and society breaks down as a result of the rapture. So planes fall from the sky, everybody wonders, hey, everything was just normal, and now, you know, all these people disappeared, what is the problem? Society breaks down because of the rapture in the pre-trib mindset. So this is the seed this is the first start where their error starts to now influence what they have to do with the rest of the timeline. They have to, because they insist that the rapture can happen at any moment without any precursors. And I, if you've seen my film, The Seven Pre-Trib Problems and The Pre-Wrath Rapture, the very first problem is the precursor problem. There are many explicit biblical references of things that have to happen before uh, the rapture, before the day of the Lord. Anyway, uh, and one of those is the sun, moon, and star signs, which happens after the midpoint. And we could go into all the things that pre-rathers know, but, but anyway. So they, they believe that the rapture causes the confusion because everything was normal, everything was going fine, and then the rapture happens and now planes have fallen from the sky and we've got all this confusion. But primarily their confusion is, what do they think that the rest of the people in the world that are left behind, how will they interpret these events? And I want to come back to that. But first, I want to briefly describe my view and, uh, to a limited extent, the general pre-wrath view of this timeline. Um, so you have the covenant starting. The Antichrist is making this covenant with many. He makes that, which uh, one of the things that that does, certainly, is starts the daily sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. So that begins the seven-year period. The rapture has not happened in the pre-wrath view at this point. 
Um, this is where I deviate a little bit from the mainstream pre-wrath in that I think that uh, it's pretty clear that during that three and a half years, he consolidates power by fighting wars with certainly three of the ten kings during that time, which I believe are um, uh, detailed in Daniel 11, 40 through 45 and other places. And then that culminates with the midpoint where, where I believe that is, well, I won't go into what I believe about the midpoint. I'll just say something happens at the midpoint. He sits in the temple, declares himself to be God. And that's when the revelry really starts with evil. The marrying and giving in marriage, pre-churbers interpret that moment as about, you know, everything's going on as normal. You know, we're all just flying planes and having a nice society and then marrying and giving in marriage. But in context, that marrying and giving in marriage must be after the midpoint. And this begins to start to see how their view completely breaks down and, and, and fails to let them even see what's happening here. But there's revelry happening. The, think about this. The Antichrist is being worshipped. We know that there are, they're bringing gifts from all over the world to him to worship him with gold, silver, and precious stones. The, the merchants are making a lot of money. Uh, the, you know, Jerusalem is a boom town. There is persecution. Yes, people see the persecution because Jesus says, and Daniel makes the point, and Jesus reiterates uh, and gives us more detail about this persecution that happens on those that won't follow the Antichrist. They are definitely not good citizens, and they are killed, and they are, I'm sure, uh, other things, tortured and stuff like that. It's really bad to be a non-follower of the Antichrist after the midpoint, but it's not chaos after the midpoint. It's a good time. The merchants are just, Mystery Babylon is doing pretty good after the midpoint. It's, it's the peak, you know, that's when the Antichrist is given his authority. It starts at the midpoint. It doesn't start at the first three and a half years. His, his time to shine is then. If you think that that is the wrath of God, then you don't understand the day of the Lord. The Lord alone is exalted on the day of the Lord. The Lord wants to make sure when his wrath starts, people are going to hide in the rocks and they're not going to be thinking marrying and giving in marriage when the day of the Lord starts. That's the whole point of that passage. I'm saying that the marrying and giving in marriage and all that stuff that he makes the point of there is that moment after the, the midpoint. The people that are following the Antichrist are doing good. They're marrying and giving in marriage. They're not thinking that they're in trouble. They're killing the Christians, sure. Christians are underground. They're, they're scrambling. They're dying. But they're sort of not a part of society. They're, to say outcast is, is not even uh, uh, the right word. So anyway, the point is when the, when the Antichrist has done all this stuff, he's fought his wars, he has declared himself king, he has forced the world to worship him, there's images of the beasts and, and mark of the beast and false prophets and everything happening. They're all having a great old grand old evil revelry time after the midpoint. And at some unknown time, that whole thing is cut short. A sun, moon, and star, star sign happens. And at that point, it's interesting. I was thinking about this. We're talking about Luke uh, 21 the other day, about how Luke makes the point that Joel makes and that Isaiah makes and that certainly Revelation 6 makes, is that when the world sees this celestial disturbance sign, the sun um, the, and the moon growing dark and this earthquake, everybody knows that it's the wrath of God. I mean, it says in Revelation 6, they hide in themselves in the rocks and, you know, the wrath of God has come. Who can stand against, the, you know, the wrath of the Lamb or whatever it says, which is, by the way, a, a as far as I can tell, a callback to Isaiah, which makes the exact same claim, claim about the day of the Lord, is that when people see the sun, moon, and star sign, which is a herald of the day of the Lord, they all tremble. The, the mighty men hide in rocks because they know it's over. No, no, there's no more marrying and giving in marriage that God, the Lamb, is going to judge them. And listen, I'm guessing 
that when Jesus shows up in his kingly glory in the sky, there's not going to be any deception about who this guy is and, hey, maybe I shouldn't have done all that evil. Oh, this wrath that's coming up. If you look at the wrath of God after it starts, the seven, the seven trumpets and the, and the bowls and all this stuff, there's no ambiguity. There's no, nobody's questioning whether or not it's God judging them. They're not thinking it's aliens. The point I'm trying to make is that in the pre-trib mindset, because they've made this error of putting the rapture before the covenant, before the covenant, because they have to put it before the seven years, because they believe the whole seven years is the wrath of God, that one thing makes them have to explain the Antichrist's rise to power, his deception, right? Because he deceives the world as a result of the event of the rapture. He explains the rapture through some means. Usually in the modern times, this has really creeped into the UFO concept. In fact, I don't think that uh, people these days that really see UFOs as a big part of the, UFO, uh, the end times deception have realized that that is a, a pre-trib holdover, you know, because it was always a convenient way to explain something that they never realized they didn't have to explain, which is how is the world going to deal with all these people leaving all of a sudden? And the answer is the world is, that's going to be the last thing on the world's mind when the actual rapture happens after the midpoint, after that revelry of evil, when Jesus shows up in the clouds and, and, and reveals who he is and reveals what he's about to do to all the people who just did all this evil. The last thing in the world that they're going to care about is what happened to all those people and be deceived about that. They're like, Oh, okay. They'll know, <laughs> they'll know what it is. And even if they don't know, it's like minimally important if they're deceived by it, if, because you know, the wrath of God has just started. But in the pre-trib view, this is, I guess, what I'm trying to say is that they're convinced, number one, that the deception of the end times is chiefly a result of the event of the rapture, which they believe happens out of nowhere, can happen right now in our very sunny day with literally no Antichrist around and nobody that even could be an Antichrist. So they believe everything that follows immediately after you know, they've concocted this non-biblical version about how that event that they say happens there will cause all the events to take place with their, uh, their, their theory that's unbiblical about how it all happens. And so therefore, if you think about it, they're saying that the deception of the end times is chief, chiefly related to the rapture, which by its very nature, they won't be here for, right? So they can't Number one, it's bad enough to say there's no possible scenario in my view that I could encounter the Antichrist. And that's bad for at least the reason that literally every single church father for the first 300 years of the church believed that wrote about this issue believed that the church would encounter the Antichrist and specifically his you know, the middle of the, uh, uh, his, the abomination of desolation. So this is a new thing. I know pre-trippers love to say that, uh, you know, this is all in the uh, early church. Please watch my uh, film, The Seven Pre-Trib Problems and the section on the early church if you have any questions about that. But it's bad enough that they say that they won't be here for the Antichrist. But to think that the deception of the end times is a result of the rapture now has doubly insulated them from from the from even thinking about it. Number one, they don't have to think about it because they won't be here. That's bad enough. But the other is that they have to believe, they have to come up with their, and if they choose to go off script, you know, come up with their own theory about the end times like everybody is wont to do anyway, they're, they're, what the problem that they're trying to solve for is, 
what will it be that the world will think that the rapture is and therefore insert theory? So they're, they're so off base on trying to figure out what's happening here. They're, they're chasing down stuff they don't even know is irrelevant. So my point on the whole thing is that, you know, we're sitting ducks for the end times deception because the vast majority of the church is not even kind of prepared for it. And it seems to me, my reading of the Olivet Discourse is that's all about a plea to not be deceived by the Antichrist and a blueprint of how not to be deceived by the Antichrist. And it is not a coincidence, in my opinion, that the modern church has decided to take the Olivet Discourse, the largest and greatest teaching on the end times given by our master, and to throw it in the trash and say, ah, it's not for us. It's like, you don't even have to read that, basically. It's for the Jews or something, I don't know. Whatever it says there, just don't even pay any attention to that. That's not a coincidence. That's the devil. It's obviously the devil. I mean, they've taken the one key that we have, and they've thrown it in the trash, and they've come up with a ridiculous theory that's based off an error that the rapture happens before the seven-year period even begins. Okay, that's it for me today. Um, you can go to my website, Bible Prophecy Talk, and I'll talk to you later. Bye.